Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Episode 100, and we leave it to the very special Dory Clark. Dory Clark is a strategy consultant, executive coach, and keynote speaker with deep experience in virtual presentations. Over the course of her career, she has worked with clients including Google, Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, Fidelity, Yale, the IMF, and the World Bank, and twice been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. Dory has also been named the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards, as well as one of the top 10 communication professionals in the world by Global Gurus. Dory is shaping new generations of business leaders by teaching at several higher education institutions, including Duke's Ficua School of Business, i.e. Business School in Spain, and the University of North Carolina's Keenan Flagler School of Business. Some of her accolades include two New England Press Association awards, serving as a presidential campaign spokesperson and a producer of a multiple Grammy-winning jazz album. Dory also invests in Broadway productions and is a lyricist in BMI's Tony Award-winning Layman Engel Musical Theater Advanced Workshop. She's also a member of the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 program as well as an angel investor and startup advisor. Dory writes regularly for the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Business Insider, and is also the author of several books, including the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Long Game, and Reinventing You, as well as Entrepreneurial You and Stand Out, which both won acclaim in Inc. Magazine and Forbes. Dory is known internationally as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their own lives. Dory, welcome to The One Away Show. Hey, Brian. So glad to be here. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to finally meet you. Uh, So thrilled to jump right in. Uh, Dory, what is your one away moment that you want to share with us today? All right. (laughs) Well, my one away moment, I was thinking back over, uh, over my life, and I realized that one instance that really turned out to be sort of surprisingly meaningful was I was in college and it was winter. It was probably December and the, the sun was setting so early. It was like four 45 in the afternoon and it was already dark and I had finished class. I did not want to go outside because I knew it would be very cold. It was Massachusetts. It was just cold and dark. And so I was essentially dawdling by the classroom and there was a message board and the message board had this notice tacked up and I hadn't seen it at all anywhere else in campus. I actually think this was probably the only message board on campus that had it because I was near the religion department, but I saw that there was going to be a recruiter from Harvard Divinity School that was coming to my campus and was going to be doing an informational meeting about divinity school. And I, this had not been on my radar at all. I thought this was like, um, it, it, it just absolutely had not occurred to me. But the minute that I heard that a recruiter from divinity school was going to be there, 
I thought it sounded like just the most fantastic idea. Now, I should also mention that I'm not really religious at all, but I was just so captivated by the idea and thought it was so interesting. I, I was a philosophy major and I was interested mm. in uh, questions about our lives and how we make meaning in our lives. So I decided that I would go to this recruiting session and I did, and I ended up uh, ultimately getting in and going to Harvard Divinity School and getting a master's degree in theological studies. Mm. And that was something that really was kind of a, a random discovery or a random occurrence that set me on a particular course. It um, had me move to Boston where I lived for 17 years. And it, I think in many ways, teed me up in, in some instances for the work that I do now, which does not in any overt way tie in with religion. But I think a lot of the work that I do now in terms of executive coaching and consulting really is about how we make and construct our own sense of meaning in our lives. And I think that that same impulse was part of what drew me to Divinity School. So interesting. I, I was watching um, the this, this Is Water talk by David Foster Wallace yesterday and about how we construct meaning from things and awareness. Anyways, um, so you you hit on a uh, point of, of reading. I So my question for you is on that note, uh, you were at a young, yeah, I should say younger age, uh, pondering probably life's bigger questions, right? Maybe people ponder in their 40s or 50s, but you were, no, I'm going to kind of think about this right now. What do you think kind of drew you to thinking about, let's say, meaning and purpose and um, the things at a younger age that maybe most people were just like, you know, checking boxes and getting through life. But you, you, on the other hand, were probably thinking a much bigger picture. You, maybe I'm just curious what stemmed those interests so early in your life. It's an interesting question. I, I, I don't really know the answer, uh, to tell you the truth, but, um, I was an only child who grew up with older parents and so I would say my, my reference set when I was a kid was like people in their forties and fifties. And so I, I just, you know, I was, I was never that into kids <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I, uh, I think that a lot of the time, I mean, you know, I, I when I saw how people would interact with their siblings, you know, as a kid or as a young adult, I was just kind of stunned at the level of malice. <laughs> and I just thought I would never treat anyone like that. You know, like it was just, I was just not operating in that realm. I was, I was with a bunch of like AARP members and, you know, I, I was, um, yeah, I, I think that my context was pretty different. So I was, uh, fairly deep kid, I guess, yeah. in, in some ways, um, mostly because I think that we make assumptions about what childhood is. But I mean, if we think back a hundred years, you know, if you were eight years old, you had a job, you know, you were like, <laughs> it wasn't right. like, you know, I mean, it's, it's very much this sort of Victorian invention of like, oh, childhood, this precious time of innocence. Like, I mean, just before that, it was like, no, you're an employee when you're like eight. <laughs> so, uh, you know, people have the capacity to sort of uh, mature early if we create a context for that. And it's not to say it's better or worse, but 
you know, in, in my case, um, yeah, I didn't really have a, a reference set of people who were running around watching Teletubbies. So I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a, what a unique way to kind of grow up, right. Without the siblings, maybe without the childhood joys or the shows or, um, and, and just on that note, you know, you see your parents were, were a little older. I mean, were they more self-exploratory or self-introspective to a point of, you know, bringing these conversations up at the dinner table or provide a plethora of books at home? Or was this really a self-adventure that you went on just because there wasn't much else around you? Um, you know, my, my mom has, has never really been, um, super into this. I think that my, my dad was, but not, we didn't have a very close connection. I, I think that he was a little bit more into it from sort of a, maybe a narcissistic perspective. <laughs> so I didn't really want to talk about these things with him because I thought it would just devolve into a monologue about him and his life and uh, things like that. So, so it was a little bit more of a, a private quest, perhaps. Private quest. I love that. Uh, I relate. So as a kid, maybe not to go too deep, and then we'll I promise we'll get back to the main point. Maybe you, you feel a bit more of an outsider, like your ideas maybe at home weren't fully understood. You didn't have people around you. I'm sure that was a hard way to maybe grow up, but clearly probably fulfilling as you've gotten later in life. I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah, I think I had to struggle with being kind of lonely uh, which is why I love cats so much. <laughs> I really, really liked cats. And I had a lot of cats as a kid. Love and it. to this day, I feel like cats are my homies. Uh, they always have your back. They're very good that way. But, uh, you know, I, I think being an only child, I mean, sometimes people assume that that's synonymous with being lonely. And I don't think that that's true. I, I don't think I was lonely because I didn't have other siblings. So I, I think there's like a lot of, there's like a lot of shame sometimes for parents of like, you know, where they have one kid and, and, you know, people, people often are like very keen to justify their own decisions or like, why do you only have one kid? They'll be so lonely. And I, I think that's extremely inaccurate. Mm. Um, but of course, I think, I think the, the bigger issue is, yeah, that I, I didn't, uh, I didn't necessarily feel like I fully fit into my cultural context in my community or, or in my family. Uh, I think it was irrespective of being an only child, but, uh, but, but that, that was a little bit of a factor. No, totally. Well, one, I appreciate you sharing maybe more of the intimate details on childhood. You probably weren't expecting, you know, going that far back on this. And I, I totally get what you mean about being an only child of a 12 year old half sister. She has the most self-confidence of ever someone I've ever met. And I'm like, she's beyond, she's not lonely at all. So I, I think your, your point is very accurate. Um, so, okay. So let's, let's jump forward back to this one away moment. Uh, so you, you saw this opportunity to go to Harvard divinity school, jumped in. I mean, I would love to hear, you know, about the experience and, you know, maybe as you kind of reflect on it, you know, that you could do it justice in a few sentences, but you know, what was so formative to you about the experience? You know, what were some of the things that you really maybe focused on or pondered on during this period of, of life? Uh, let's start there. Well, when I was in divinity school, so the way that they broke it down, I think I'd probably, uh, take slightly different things if I were doing it now. Um, world religion was a 
piece of the curriculum at, at Harvard Divinity School at the time, but it wasn't a kind of primary part of the curriculum. And I, I think if I had it to do over, I would definitely take more world religion courses. That would have been pretty awesome. Yeah. But what I went deep in at the time was a, a, a sort of line of inquiry that they called Christianity and culture. And I would essentially describe it as like the history and sociology of religion, particularly uh, American Christianity. And that was really interesting for me because part of what I wanted to understand was I was wanting to have a historical context about our about our contemporary political culture. And religion at the time was was playing, I mean, I think it always is kind of a substratum of public life, but at the time it was really ascendant. Uh, the Christian coalition was flexing its muscles a lot in uh, political discourse. And so just wanting to understand where where people's points of view came from and what was shaping it. And so that I could be more, more effective in terms of participating in advocacy and in the public sphere, uh, I thought was something that was very compelling to me at the time. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it seems like a very, from what you said, pretty deep education on American uh, or Western culture, maybe religion and the integration of you know, how it played out in policy or how it played out in business. I mean, with just to peel in a layer here, you know, what did you notice, right, about, you know, how, what the, the impact of religion was on um, American culture, you know, just from your observations then? Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, one of the biggest changes was that you know, again, if we're talking about the relatively modern period, up until you know, sort of the fifties, the sixties, for um, for the kind of conservative wing of American religion, there was a view that essentially being involved in the public sphere was a little bit impure, and that if you wanted to keep your religious purity, that you really need to stay out of it, and so the bias was for religious people to not be active in um, in the political realm. It was it was viewed as as kind of antithetical. But that began to change in the, you know, beginning in the 60s and then especially the 70s, especially the 80s, uh, where you get these strands around Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and the moral majority. You start to see uh, a real rejection of the, the previous point of view that actually, you know, the view is, well, we, you know, we need to create, uh, we need to, you know, kind of create God's realm here on earth. And so there was a lot more overt advocacy and it, it became common, uh, for religion in, and the public sphere to coexist quite tightly. So seeing that transition was fascinating. And, and just to also, you know, just to understand that within, you know, a generation, within, a, you know, a decade or two, sometimes a very established point of view of how things are done can be dramatically overturned mm. and an entirely different ideology can take over and take its place. Um, that was really interesting to, to witness and to understand. 
It's very, very, very interesting. I'm sure, uh, I mean, I feel like it connects to your latest book and just some of your work as well and kind of shifting ideologies of way things have been done. We'll get there. Um, so let's um, talk about, I mean, I, I'd be curious about why you wish you studied more world and global religion, but I, I you know, we can maybe have that conversation another time. So let's let's dive into, so you, you go through this program at Harvard Divinity School, you soak it in, you really learn about these ideologies, how they're shifted, just a lot of different things in culture. You said it shaped for yourself a future that maybe you weren't expecting. What what were your next steps? And by the way, if I'm skipping over anything in divinity school that you want to share, by all means, let's feel free to drop anything in. But how did that experience shape you to say, okay, think about what you're going to go do next in your career, in your life? Yeah, so I had a, a post divinity school plan, which I thought was a, was a very solid one, uh, which was that I was going to get my master's degree and then I would go on and get a doctorate and I would become an academic. And specifically what I decided to do was, you know, I was going to tweak the formula a little bit. I was not going to get a doctorate in religion. What I was going to do was get a doctorate in English literature and study basically you know, literature overlaid with religion, like religious themes in literature. I thought, ah, this will be perfect. You know, I can kind of blend it together. It turned out this was not a good plan. And I uh, ended up getting, getting turned down by all of the doctoral programs that I applied to, which was kind of my first time professionally that I really hit a, hit a brick wall. And it was like, Oh, okay. This thing that I was going to do, this is not going to happen. And I realized that I had to, uh, to pivot pretty quickly. I did not have a plan B. I did not in any way think I would get turned down by every program I applied to. So I really didn't know what to do. Um, what I ended up doing was kind of coming up with a little bit of a makeshift plan where I did a couple of internships. And so that what would have been fall semester, I interned at the state house in Massachusetts where I was living for a state rep. And then in the spring, I interned at Boston Magazine, which is kind of one of the, the lifestyle magazines that they have in different cities. And from that, I was able to start, <laughs> I was able to have enough connections and enough experience to start getting some paid work. So I ultimately, the following summer, became the campaign manager for the state rep who I had interned for. And then starting in the fall, I got a job as an actual reporter at a newspaper. But the the path from divinity school, I, I thought it would be a smooth transition into academia, but it, it turned out I had to begin pivoting. And that was certainly a lesson that I, I took with me. It, part of it ultimately inspired my first book that I wrote a decade plus later, uh, reinventing you, but, uh, a, a reinvention was definitely needed. Totally. Now, I mean, one, it takes a lot of courage to, uh, let's just say you're, you're beating down one path, all the doors shut and you say, I got to switch gears. You know, it's a great skill for your entire life, but you know, navigate so early. I mean, were you, were you always more of a, type A type, I'm, I, I gotta have this perfect plan. And then, I mean, life kind of set you on your rocker. I mean, is that, was that kind of ingrained in you? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely was a bit of an overachiever. I mean, when I think back on college, 
I had this book, the Princeton review came out with a book at the time, which was like, it, it was called the top 100 internships in America. And I mean, you know, how, how exactly they determined these were the top 100 internships, God only knows, but somehow they had this listing and I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do. And so during, you know, only the best. And so during college, I actually ended up uh, doing two internships, you know, out of, out of my college uh, summer uh, summers, I did two internships, one of which was in the top listed in the top 100 and one of which was listed in the top 10 of the uh, premier internships uh, in the country. So I, I was, I was definitely always aiming high one way or the other. <laughs> well, I, I feel like our, our stories are similar for another time, but I, I totally get that when you like see that and you beat, beat down everything to get there. So you for on, on the academic side, you know, it sounds like the ball didn't bounce your way in any regard. You were rejected everywhere. And then you shifted to, you know, getting these internships and these six, you know, fundamental experience to give you a platform to go get paid work on. Uh, what was your, you know, process, you know, let's just say for a 25 year old person listening to this, who realizes they need to take a different path in their own life, you know, for you, you know, what, what did you do during that transition period when you didn't know what to do uh, that you know, allowed you to maybe build that essential experience uh, that was helped you give a platform for what was after? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'll be honest, I didn't take very long in the what am I going to do uh, period because I... I was really alarmed <laughs> and, uh, and also I needed, I needed to start doing something. So I, I pretty much just like very, I, I just felt like I could not afford to wallow. So I very quickly pivoted to, okay, who, do, who do I know? And what kind of experiences can I set up that will put me in good stead so that I can convert this to a paid job relatively soon. I was uh, very hyper-focused on being able, you know, if I was not to have a career within the confines of academia, I knew I needed to get paid work pretty soon. I knew I probably did not have quite enough professional experience to, you know, really be a great candidate. Uh, so I thought, all right, what professional experience can I get that will quickly make me a great candidate? And then I work backwards from there. Absolutely. I, I such a smart approach. Now, just given your, your work in your career, I mean, it seems like you've been quite intentional, let's just say in your pursuits, working backwards, having those goals, you know, and doing that. But in that, let's just say that young period of your life where you were still fairly a young professional, still navigating, you know, open waters without tons of experience. Um, was it, how much, you know, going back to your divinity school experience, how much were you thinking about maybe more meaning and, and, and alignment, right. To who you were as a person when you were pursuing those opportunities, or was it, I just need to get my foot in the door somewhere. I need to find the, the next step. And then I can think about that later. Or did you see it as part of a continuum of, of togetherness per se? I think that a lot of the jobs that I was interested in, particularly at that point in my life, you know, working in politics or working in journalism, I saw as an outgrowth of advocacy. I mean, 
you know, journalism is objective, but but it is a form of advocacy in the sense that you're choosing what topics you're writing about, you're choosing, you know, what exactly you are shining a light on. And so I I think that, you know, part part of what had inspired my uh, also my interest in divinity school was understanding the contemporary pol- political landscape and making sense of that. And so I think that this was of a piece that I felt like I wanted to make a positive impact on society and that some of the jobs that I would hopefully be doing um, after my uh, goal in academia blew up. Uh, I was hoping that I could continue um, benefiting society through whatever I chose to do. Nice. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I like the, uh, what you said about advocacy work, right. And how those jobs in a sense were extensions of that. And you always had that maybe higher goal in mind and maybe as a thread through all your work, you know, advocating and helping people change and, and, you know, maybe get on the right steps in, in their life. And so it's neat to carry that thread line through, which I think you've, you have done quite well. So, I mean, just curious, you know, you did these internships, and what led to, I'm just curious, you know, how, how are you thinking about getting paid work from there? And then also, I'm just curious, you know, from not to ask two questions at once, but you wanted to be an author or maybe you maybe didn't want to, but you decided to write on, on some of these experiences. I'm, I'm just curious why you chose to, you know, be an author uh, and want to help people through this. Yeah. So in terms of how how to transition from the internships to paid work. You know, I didn't, I didn't really have a super clear vision. I think, I think I I had this idea of like, well, you meet people and then, uh, they like you. (laughs) That was probably about as sophisticated as that was, but in all honesty, it's not wrong either. Right. I mean, a lot of job openings are not even advertised and you do need to meet people and you do need to impress them with your work ethic or your ability to do stuff. And in in fact, the, the theory bore out, you know, the jobs that I did get, it was the unadvertised job of being the campaign manager for the state rep that I interned for. I was the first and I think the only person that they approached uh, because they thought I was a likely candidate. And so I, I said yes and went into that. And then that ended after the summer and I started looking around and by then I had been freelancing with my writing, uh, for, you know, I, I had interned at Boston magazine. So I was freelancing and doing some small pieces for them. And, you know, by small, I mean, literally they're like a paragraph, they pay me a hundred bucks or something, but I was, I was doing a little bit with them. I was doing a little bit of freelancing for the paper that I ultimately started writing for the Boston Phoenix. And so I had met with a woman who was the editor there and she liked me. So she knew, I, you know, I mean, again, you're in touch with people. They kind of know that you're looking for something. And so she asked if I would come on because they had an opening there. Yeah. Well, I, I find that transition so fascinating. And I want to ask you a question that might be touchy, so feel free to avoid it. But uh, similar to you, I did three unpaid internships that were unadvertised. Uh, yeah. What were, what were your internships in Brian? Well, uh, they, were, they started off in sports marketing, but they gave me a lot of foundational skills to career pivot and ditch 
sports. But anyways, I, I want to make this about you, but I, I saw free work as build a foundation of relationships early to build a, you know, get to on my own internal GPS of where I wanted my life to go for better or worse. And so a lot of people, right, given the climate, let's just say we're in today, you should not work for free. And yeah, my privilege might have an aspect to do with this. Not everyone can do that. But from your perspective, right, I, I saw this privileged or not, whether it was an investment in myself for the future, and I, I'd find a way to make it pay forward. Uh, and so I'm for you, how how do you feel about just a younger people with who don't have a lot of career experience uh, doing free work? And, and do you, do you think that's the right approach? And I get it, it might be different for everyone, but how would you answer it? And I know you might be biased with your own experience, but just given the times we're in today, what do you think is right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So certainly, you know, there is a big push toward uh, paying all interns and, you know, while while on one hand, I think that that is a you know it's a, a laudable goal. If someone's doing work, pay them. You know, I, I if you're advising employers, I would certainly say yes, that's a great thing to do. Um, but if you're on the other end of the equation, if you are the person who is the intern and is deciding whether or not to accept something, I would say take the unpaid gig every day of the week because here's the thing: if you're an intern largely you're not qualified to do very much. And it's not like you're going to be doing incredibly high level work, right? Whatever it is, is probably relatively low level. And if they are paying you, they feel entitled to give you crappy work because they're paying you. You're an employee. Whereas if you are an intern that is working for free, if you have a good boss you know, not, not everybody does, but God willing, if you ha have a good boss, they feel guilty that you are working for free and they will make a conscious effort to balance out the stupid work, you know, the collating things with actually making an effort to do something special for you, to bring you to the meeting, to give you the access, to give you the introduction, to give you the opportunity. And that's what you're banking on mm. is that they will, they will be sympathetic enough that they will want to go the extra mile to help you with something. And that is how the favor economy gets done. So now is this unfair to people who don't have the, you know, the, the financial bandwidth of, you know, parents who are willing to front the money or pay the rent or whatever? Absolutely it is. And I think that, I think that sucks. I think that's an unfortunate element of society. There's a lot of things we can't control. I didn't grow up with as much privilege as people who, grew up in New York City and went to Dalton or Brearley. <laughs> I don't have those connections, but I also know that I have way more privilege than someone who grew up without a stable family. And, you know, I mean, I, I always knew, however horrendous the prospect felt, um, I knew that if, you know, God forbid, everything blew up, I could always go home and sleep in, you know, my parents' house in rural North Carolina. That was not in any way desirable, but I, it's also different than sleeping under a bridge. So I get that. Um, but to the extent that it's feasible, I would say, you know, is it unfortunate that you'd have to work harder than other people and maybe take, you know, the, the, the sort of stupid job at McDonald's in order to earn enough money so that you can also have the unpaid internship somewhere else. Yeah. I actually think that's worth it. And, um, 
even if it is unfair, I think that that is a, a sacrifice that if, if one needs to make it, one should make it because it is the right kind of investment that can dramatically change your socioeconomic circumstances over the long term. Yeah. Wow. I, I love how you answered it. And I, I thought a lot about the quote, you know, we're all dealt, you know, a deck of cards, right. And, and it's on us to really use that to the best of our advantage. And, and maybe you weren't born living under a bridge and maybe you weren't born going to the elite, you know, in the New York family, but you know, you took on the opportunities that were right for you. And you know, now you're using that to make an impact on others. Right. And I think it's like the best way to do it. It's not a money hungry driven profession. Although you, I mean, you know, success follows, you know, a lot of hard work. So uh, I, I love how you answered that. And, and while we're on this topic of interns, just because I think this is right up your alley and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe this is your next book, you know, about interns, um, you know, uh, what, what would you say to the 20 year old, 19 year old intern paid or unpaid, you know, how to create access within their organization, how to get, you know, in front of the meetings that make sense, you know, what does it take to succeed and do the things as an intern that helps you stand out uh, when no one else, you know, when other people aren't? Well, I think there's, there's a few things. I mean, obviously uh, COVID has put a, a little bit of a crimp in, in some of this in terms of in-person things. Although, you know, ironically now um, it's it certainly, it certainly equalized things geographically. Um, you can do virtual internships so much more easily than you ever could. Um, but when it comes to like real, real world in-person things, this is, this seems like the most dumb basic advice, but it's actually super, uh, relevant. What I noticed is the interns who dressed the best often got the best opportunities. And when I say the best, I don't mean they wore Armani. I just meant that they dressed professionally because at a, at a very minimum level, you, even if they like you, even if your boss likes you, they can't, they structurally cannot take you to a meeting if you're dressed in a hoodie and ripped jeans. Like, that's not going to fly. They will never take you to the meeting. And so you have to be dressed professionally enough so that you will not stand out and um, you can you can be there and whatever, help carry the boxes or whatever they need you to do. Um, but so I think, you know, sometimes we think that it's about like going above and beyond with some special thing, but actually sometimes it's literally just a question of meeting minimum viable standards that most people fail to meet. So that's one piece of it. I think the other thing is, um, you know, certainly there, there are ways that if, you know, I mean, also an internship, it's not that long, right? It's like two months, three months. And so it's actually amazing if you think of it as, you know, I, I think a lot of interns are like, this is my summer. I want to have fun with my summer. And, and that, you know, that's true. But also if you think, wow, if I really over-index here for two or three months, which is not a huge amount of time, I can actually dramatically make a, an impact in terms of getting noticed and getting opportunities that will open doors later two or three months is not a huge amount of time to invest in the scheme of things. And so, you know, I interned at a, at a advertising agency when I was in college. And this was, this was in fact, the place that was like the top 10, uh, places to intern. And I came in, you know, I could have done more of this. I did, you know, I really didn't, but 
a few mornings in a row, I was working on some project and I came in early. I came in at like 7.30 in the morning. Well, who's there at 7.30 in the morning? The CEO is there at 7.30 in the morning. I mean, why, you know, why is he the CEO? Duh. It's probably because he actually does things like this. Um, but he saw me there and he, and therefore he learned my name because other interns were not doing that. Now I probably should have been hanging out with him every morning at 7.30. I didn't, I was too lazy and it was too hard to get up, but I did it enough that, that, you know, he remembered who I was. And so it's just a few a few little things that can be quite powerful in terms of catching people's eye. Yeah. Wow. Chills. Uh, really good stuff. I, and not definitely the little things. I mean, it's how you can be eliminated by uh, not dressing to par, but also how you can like truly be noticed by getting in earlier, staying late. So appreciate your uh, wise words on internships. Uh, I think good, good advice for, you know, all the CEOs or, young professionals listening. Um, so for you, Dory, you know, I'm, I'm, you, you've talked about divinity school and setting you on this path. I mean, you've had a wide range of experiences from, you know, where you've taught, who you've coached, who you've, you know, books you've written. And instead of kind of taking us down the, uh, play step-by-step playbook here, I, for you, you know, what, what are some of the most maybe fulfilling, uh, career experiences that you've had, or you look at maybe you're currently doing them, or you look back on and, and it's just that said, wow, that felt so aligned. That had the most impact. And uh, yeah, how, how you answer that? Well, I think there's a couple of different ways that one could answer it. Um, I will say when it comes to thinking about quote unquote legacy or something where I, I just feel really proud of um, writing my books has been very impactful because a lot of the work that we do in our current, you know, sort of knowledge worker, uh, quote unquote kind of situation, it kind of vanishes pretty quickly, right? Like, you know, obviously you're talking with people, you, you advise them, you make an impact in some way, but at the end of the day, okay, you sent some emails, you did some presentations, you know, like Mm. it, it, it's not like something you can really hold up for a long time. Um, it kind of vanishes with the next day or the next, next week's worth of work. But the books are things that actually do have a little more heft and a little more longevity and can reach more people over time. So that's something that feels very powerful. I would say a professional experience that I look back on very fondly that did not last hugely long. uh, It was about six months of my life, but was something that was very helpful and very impactful for me was after, so my first journalism job that I had uh, working at the newspaper, I ended up getting laid off about a year later and I was unemployed and trying, you know, trying to land a full-time job and couldn't. And so as I was doing this, I did freelance writing and that was actually incredibly entrepreneurial. I didn't think of it at the time as training in entrepreneurship, but that was exactly what it is. Um, it was very, it was very powerful because Ultimately, it taught me a couple of things. The first is a very acute customer orientation because you're, you know, in this case, your customer is the editor. But if you can get the editor interested in your pitch, they will buy it. You will 
get money. You will you will be able to pay your rent. Uh, if you cannot manage to get the customer interested, you're not going to eat. And so it became very high stakes for you to learn how to give the customer what they wanted. Um, so learning how to craft an effective pitch became you know, there was constant up or down feedback. What are they responding to? What do they like? What do they green light? You know, what are they not? Um, so that was really helpful. And it also, you know, all of my professional journalism experience, I think was quite valuable in that it took the preciousness out of writing for me. I think where a lot of professionals struggle these days, uh, you know, not not people who are full-time writers, but but often professionals who want to do some writing to market their services or get their ideas out there, they often get a little hung up because they, you know, feel like, oh, they have to have the perfect, the perfect writing, the perfect idea, the perfect thing. And it just seems so elusive. But ultimately, if you are a paid professional journalist, it's your job. And so like you know, writer's block is not a thing. You do not have the luxury of writer's block. You just need to freaking deliver. And I think taking taking that viewpoint actually is really helpful because you don't get tied in knots thinking like, oh, how do I make it just right? It's not about being just right. It's about, you know, getting it right enough and then it's done. Yeah. Well, I love what you said about maybe let's just say the, the emotional intelligence around building rapport with the editor or learning how to break through a door and connecting, right? If you don't do that, you don't eat. Uh, but then also even more important, well, not more importantly, maybe just as important, uh, just learning how to write and communicate as a life skill. I mean, to diffuse ideas and develop thoughts and create, right? Uh, I, I think could be, is, is such an essential uh, tool to have and, uh, you know, probably one of the most important life skills. So it's neat that, you know, you really took, you know, took that upon yourself to really not just do, but that, yeah, I think you, you took the life lessons and learnings from it, uh, and said, okay, how does this apply to the big picture of where I'm going? So I, I really appreciate that. Now, I want to go back to what you said about maybe books having the most longevity. And I want to give some airtime to your latest book, uh, The Long Game. And I know we connected a little bit about it prior to the show and it just resonates pretty deeply. You know, what made you write the book? And tell us for those that don't know it or know you, what, what the book's about. Yeah, thank you, Brian. So the book is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And I was inspired to write the book because ultimately I realized in, in so many ways we're in this society that pushes us toward the short term. And, you know, we see it in lots of ways. We, of course, there's Wall Street scandals where executives are uh, being pushed to come up with ridiculous short-term profits. We see it in our own lives or the lives of people around us where they're constantly stressed out by social media and feeling like they need to keep up with something that, you know, with other people in their success, which, you know, may or may not be illusory, but we don't know. So we feel pressured to do it. But I think where it, where it really came home was with my coaching clients that I'd work mm -hmm. with, you know, everybody knows, everybody can tell you, they've heard a million times, you know, there's no such thing as overnight success. And everybody knows that intellectually and, you know, they believe it. But also the problem is that besides not overnight, nobody actually tells you what not, not overnight means. 
is not overnight. Okay. It doesn't take a night. It takes a month. Is it, Oh, it doesn't take a night. It takes a year. Is it, Oh, maybe it takes 10 years. No one actually gives you guidance about that. And so therefore you often get a lot of really smart, talented professionals that are really stressed out. They are not making the progress. They feel like they should, they worry that they're doing it wrong. And the truth is they're doing exactly what they should be doing, Mm -hmm. but it's just that things take a while. Mm -hmm. And what I would see so often is that good people often would, would quit too soon because they didn't know how to contextualize the journey. Mm. And so I wanted to write a book that was helpful in that, hopefully in, in helping to, to encourage people and to give them the context they needed so that they could feel comfortable persisting and moving forward in pursuit of a worthy goal or a worthy journey, even when it was taking quite a while. Yeah. I think so many people in this world lack maybe that emotional and functional resilience to, to keep going, uh, hit the first hurdle or second hurdle. And they, they don't know how to persist, uh, which is a shame, uh, also an opportunity for those that do for, for you. Um, why do you think they're like these, these structural underpinnings that have led to such a short-term mindset in the first place? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, of course, the the ultimate structural underpinning is just we're human. And as humans, of course, we like short-term gratification. Like that's sort of the nature of being a human is like, oh, you know, well, yeah, I'll t- you know, if all else being equal, I will take the marshmallow now. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we all would like that. But of course, the the part we have to realize is that all, all things are not equal. And there is a value to waiting, but you know, the, the, the lizard brain is not aware of that. So we need the conscious brain to override it and be like, no, no, wait, wait, you know, you'll get two if you wait. And so, uh, I think that ultimately you have to, you, you have to align incentives properly, right? Like if you think about, um, the, the financial crisis of 2008, for instance, one of the biggest problems with it was that there were companies that were selling uh, CDOs, the collateralized debt obligations. And what it meant was that the the people who were selling mortgages, um, you know, you know, like setting up mortgages with people that couldn't afford to pay the mortgages, the incentives were not aligned because if I am being rewarded for selling a bunch of mortgages, but I don't have to bear the consequence of people defaulting, well, then I'm going to sell mortgages all day long. I have no risk. I have you know, no skin in the game whatsoever. I'm going to just keep doing it because the, this, you, know, you were selling these tranches of mortgages to all these other people. They were bearing the consequences. Yeah. If you bear the consequence of your decisions and or your mistakes, then you're a lot more careful about what you do. And so similarly, you know, why is there such problem with Wall Street? Well, it's because there's not a lot of long-term investors anymore. You know, you've got a lot fewer people thinking like Warren Buffett. You know, Warren Buffett says buy a company a great company once and hold it forever, <laughs> you know? And there's a lot more people that are flippers and day traders and, you know, just trying to to make money in the short term. And so the incentives are wrong. But mm-hmm. I think for all of us we have to realize 
Um, even if there are pressures, even if the people around us are like, yeah, do this, do this, do this, you are stuck with yourself for your whole life. And so hopefully if you, if you really get clear on the incentives, well, your incentive should be to make decisions that will help future you. And we are, um, we're being led astray to, to the extent where we are doing things that are pulling us off of that path. Um, we need to get clear and get aligned on making sure, because we will be with ourselves uh, for a very, very long time, we need to get back to long-term thinking because the yeah. things that we can do today that make our life easier and better 20 years from now, those are the things we should be doing. Absolutely. And I love what you said about incentives. And a, and a quote I heard recently was um, long-term thinkers play long-term games or, or something to that nature. And so, uh, I mean, I, I'm excited um, for the impact that this book will have on, on the readers and hopefully readers that spread them to more short-term thinkers uh, in the process. So I want to, I, we have a few minutes left. I want to end on maybe um, a couple kind of hot seat questions. So maybe answer in 30 seconds or less. Uh, and then we'll let people know where to find you in, in your books. Um, so I want to go back to uh, what you said about maybe your, your interest in policy and advocacy a bit early. Uh, if you could change one thing in the political landscape today, what would it be and why? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that one of, one of the things that I am... Um, Always, you know, to, to the point about long-term thinking, I mean, I really do <laughs> believe this stuff. Um, I think that it is great that we are finally addressing infrastructure. Um, now, you know, I, I understand as with so many things, it's kind of unfortunate um, in the current debate about Biden's infrastructure bill, it's gotten very politicized. Um, but ultimately, I think that one of the best things that we can be doing is, uh, you know, and I, and I also do think it's a little bit unfair and a little bit sleight of hand to, you know, some of the things that, that later got knocked down about, you know, trying to put like human service things into an infrastructure bill. Like that's not the same. It's right. that is different. Um, but if we're talking about investing in roads, investing in sewers, investing in, you know, mass transit, I think it is incredibly irresponsible that, we just keep kicking the can down the road and you end up with, you know, disasters and things like bridge collapses because, you know, we could have put in a million dollar fix, you know, at a certain point of time, but we don't. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And all of a sudden it's a billion dollar fix. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we can be smart and if we can be organized about doing the things now that will prevent bigger problems down the road, I think that's the way that I want us to be as a society. So uh, the fact that, that finally we are turning our attention to this, I think, is a net positive. Yeah, I love that answer. I mean, really, really well said. So Bob, great. Uh, let's move on to the next one. Um, best boss slash leader that you've had. Who, oh. who and why? Yeah, that's that's easy. It was a boss from an unpaid internship. Yeah, <laughs> same here. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. I had um, 
it, it was very impactful for me. Somebody I really admired a ton. Uh, her name was Kim Ward and Kim was my boss when I was, uh, I was a rising junior in college and I was interning for her. Uh, she worked for the national organization for women in DC. And I spent the summer working for her and I just, I just loved her so much. And she was so nice and, um, you know, really did make an effort to take me to the meetings and to, you know, give, give me different opportunities for things. She was very encouraging. And, you know, it's, it's very meaningful when you're early in your career. I mean, you haven't seen anything, you haven't, you know, done anything. And so, you know, I had plenty of really ridiculous things that I had to do for that job. Like, you know, at the, at the time we were literally sending blast faxes. And so I had to like program the fax machine. (laughs) It was like so terrible, but I also got to do a lot of really cool things. So she was wonderful. So neat. Yeah. Everyone needs a good uh, master teacher, so to speak. So uh, that's awesome. Okay. So last question, then we'll, then we'll wrap the, let's just say 10 years. Let's let's just say in an ideal world everyone in the world is a long-term thinker. What's, what's the net result? Ooh, I like it. I like it. Everyone in the world is a long-term thinker. I think that, um, probably, uh, the, the net results of everyone being a long-term thinker is that we completely eliminate high pressure sales and also, um, we, we completely eliminate obesity <laughs> and, uh, we live in a world that I think feels a lot friendlier and with a lot more agency because people don't have to be bullied or forced or pressured into doing things. Mm. They are proactively going to make choices that are in their best interest and so if you, in a very rational way, can help explain X, Y, Z is in your best interest, then that's how we get sales. You build relationships and you explain that something's in, uh, in someone's best interest and they say, yes, that sounds great. Uh, a lot of the things that we really hate about contemporary society, about you know shiny, flashy lights trying to sell you Cheetos or uh, you know, people who are trying to you know, do the presumptive close. Well, Brian, do you want to sign the contract today or tomorrow at 9 a.m.? Uh, you know, that, that goes away. Yeah, such a good answer. Um, thank you for, for your insights. This has been incredible. Uh, Dory, where can people find you, your books? Get in touch. Thanks so much, Brian. Well, if uh, folks want to learn more about uh, my work and especially the the long game, uh, one free resource I have is the long game strategic thinking self-assessment. Uh, it helps you apply the principles of long-term thinking to your own life and career. And folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Awesome. Well, Dory, um, thank you. Uh, I highly recommend Dory's work, her books, her website. There's a lot of great articles in her on Harvard Business Review. Um, Dory, thanks again. This was a blast. Thanks, Brian. Great talking with you. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.